0: Good morning, Revers. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, well, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the events leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, And today we'll be looking at Luke 23, verse 26 to 55, which is the story about the crucifixion. So we're looking at Luke's account of that. And it's such a familiar story. Uh, Luke's account starts with Jesus being led away to be crucified. Uh, Then we find Simon of Cyrene is uh, brought into the the story as he's uh, made to carry the cross for Jesus. We have crowds of people watching what was going on and Jesus interacting with the people in the crowds. And then we have Jesus being crucified with the two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And eventually one of those criminals uh, comes to some kind of faith in Jesus and expresses faith in Jesus. And then we find in the story that the sky turns dark for about three hours and eventually Jesus dies. And then right at the end of this passage, we have Joseph of Arimathea who comes along, takes the body and buries Jesus' body uh, in his tomb. So that's the overview of the uh, story, and there are lots of details in it. So what I'd like to do is just work through it uh, a few verses at a time, so we kind of uh, just pick up on all the details. So first of all, Luke 23 and verse 26 says, As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. As the soldiers led him away, as the soldiers led him away, it's strange to think of Jesus being led by somebody else. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Uh, He is the one that leads the way. He is the one that calls others to follow him. Uh, but here in this situation, soldiers are leading Jesus. Jesus is submitting himself to the will of the Father uh, because he knows that he has to go through the cross in order to gain and win salvation for so many people. And so on this occasion, he is willing to be led by others. They seize Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, put the cross on him. And carried it behind Jesus. What a lovely picture this is of the words Jesus said himself in Luke 9.23. Where he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And here we have Simon who is literally taking up Jesus' cross and following him along this way towards the place of the skull. He was literally working this out. Uh, But whereas Simon was forced to take up the cross, Jesus invites each of us to take up the cross daily. We have to take up that cross hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year, on this journey of dying towards self and living for Christ. It isn't easy. It's not an easy journey. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Let us comfort ourselves with this thought, that in our case, as in Simon's, it is not our cross, but Christ's cross that we carry. So he's saying that every time we are ridiculed or mocked for having a faith in Jesus, it's, we're carrying his cross. It's not our cross. It's not something we've created, but we are carrying his cross. He goes on, you carry the cross after him. You have blessed company. Your path is marked with the footprints of your Lord." And remember, though Simon had to bear the cross for a very little while, it gave him lasting honour. Even so, the cross we carry is only for a little while at most, and then we shall receive the crown, the glory. So we have to bear this cross. We share in something of Christ's sufferings inasmuch as we're ridiculed sometimes for being a people of faith Uh, But we gain this wonderful crown, the glory uh, that God gives to us ultimately. Verse 27 says that a large number of people followed Jesus, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So we hear that a large number of people followed this procession. And the women in the crowd particularly mourned for him and wailed for him. We don't have public executions in the UK now, fortunately. But when they did have them, it wasn't unusual for great crowds to gather. It was um, a great spectacle. And I think Jerusalem in this time was probably no different. The people gathered Uh, to see what was happening. And when you've got somebody that's so so well-known, Jesus being a bit of a celebrity, I guess, in his day, more people would have come out to see what was going to happen. Some were there from a sense of pity. Some were there out of curiosity. Some were there because they were followers of Jesus. Wherever Jesus had gone in his life, crowds followed him. Uh, He miraculously multiplied food. Some people followed him because they thought, well, if I can get a free meal, that's, that's a great thing to do. Other people wanted to find healing for themselves or for their family members. But wherever he went, there were crowds. And this occasion is a different kind of crowd, a different kind of occasion. These followers... We were not expecting personal gain from being there. Some of them may be uh, just there because they were ghoulish spectators. They wanted to sort of look and see what was happening. Uh, But most of them were there because they were concerned uh, about Jesus. And they seemed to be mourning, genuinely mourning for him. But even in this moment, Jesus has concern for the rest of the crowd, not just himself. He's saying to these people, you need to mourn and weep for yourselves, don't mourn and weep for me. Because he knew that the rejection of of, of him meant the judgment of God was going to come on Jerusalem. When he speaks about weeping for themselves, he's thinking about the destruction of Jerusalem that is going to happen in AD 70. He's already prophesied about it previously uh, in the book of Luke. Um, But he knows that the Roman army are going to gather in AD 70, about 30 to 40 years' time. And they're going to flatten Jerusalem. They're going to tear down the temple. And he's saying to them, weep for yourselves and the next generation, your children, because they will experience uh, this besieging of Jerusalem and this flattening of Jerusalem as Rome comes in uh, and the horror of the whole destruction of the city and the temple. That is why he's saying that childless women will be better off and why they're going to say, let the mountains and the hills fall on us. And then we have this very strange saying, for if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? This uh, little proverb, this little saying has puzzled commentators, but uh, there are different interpretations. But I would like to suggest that it refers to the Romans. Romans. And Jesus is saying, if the Romans abuse me uh, when I haven't provoked them, uh, what will they do to Jerusalem and to the Jewish people when they do provoke them in the future? And that is what happened in AD 70, that the Jews were uh, provoking the Romans. They were uh, annoying the Romans sufficiently that they came in and decided to take over the city and flatten it. Verse 32 says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, "'Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing.' And they divided up his clothes by casting lots." Isn't it extraordinary that Jesus is able to say, "'Father, forgive them,' For they do not know what they're doing in the middle of this desperate moment for him. He is looking at the soldiers and recognizing that they are just doing their job. They're doing the bidding of their commanders, but they're also doing the bidding of Satan himself. And Jesus sees the bigger picture. He understands what's going on. When we are wronged, it's difficult not to get angry and annoyed and Uh, frustrated with the person that's right in front of us, but sometimes there's a hidden enemy at work. It's extraordinary that in this intense moment of pain and humiliation, Jesus is able to forgive his tormentors. And they divide up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus had very few possessions. These possessions are his last possessions that are taken away. And they're referenced back in Psalm 22:18, this incredible psalm which uh, looks ahead to the time when Jesus is going to be crucified, and it says, "There in that verse, "They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment." Such an accurate and detailed prophetic word pointing to this particular moment uh, recorded in Luke, a thousand years before. Uh, accurately prophesied. Verse 35 says, The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Again, all of this is foreseen in Psalm 22, verse 7, which says, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Just thinking about this scene and the crowd that are there watching these men being crucified, I think there's two types of watching going on. I think there are people there who are watching to see if something miraculous is about to happen as they crucify Jesus. They're there wondering whether there's something extraordinary that they're about to witness. It says in this account that the soldiers offered him wine vinegar. In Matthew and Mark's account, it says that somebody offered him wine vinegar on a staff but some of the people said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. So there was, I think, with some of the people's expectation that possibly something quite miraculous and unusual was about to happen. But there was another group of people watching in a different way. They were watching uh, with this increasing confidence that they had exposed Jesus as a fraud. The rulers and authorities were mocking him. They were looking on, I think, possibly relieved that something miraculous hadn't happened because they wanted to expose him as a fake. And so the rulers take the lead in making these uh, sneering comments about Jesus. And the soldiers were encouraged by their behavior, and so they do the same. They copy. Those who exercise authority need to be careful that they don't lead other people astray in the wrong way. And it seems as if that's what was happening here. And then you have this sign on the top of the cross above Jesus' head which says, this is the King of the Jews. Uh, it wasn't unusual to have these um, statements on the cross so that people knew why these criminals were being crucified. It was a charge, like a charge sheet. And so Jesus has got this sign saying, this is the king of the Jews. So present tense, interestingly, rather than this was the king of the Jews or this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And then the rulers have had a go at Jesus. The soldiers have had a go at Jesus. And now even one of the criminals next to him has a go at him as well. He joins in. The sneering continues to go from the uh, the people, the, the sort of posh people, the, the wealthy people, the people in authority threw down to the, the next level of, of uh, society and they were all the way down to the lowest of the low, the criminal himself. And we can easily be led astray by people who've got strong views. But even those people express themselves forcefully, it doesn't mean that they're right. The taunts are ironic. They're intended to make fun of Jesus. But Jesus accepts the way of the cross because he knows that as he dies, salvation is available for everyone else. If he'd saved himself, there would be no salvation for any of us. So, of course, these people in front of them, they want a Messiah who's going to overthrow the Romans. They want a Messiah who's going to raise up an army. They want a Messiah who's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem and begin to rule uh, the whole world from Jerusalem. But the oppression of sin is a far greater tyrant than any political regime. And so Jesus stays with it. And die so that salvation can be available for all of us. Verse 40, we read the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal somehow has grasped the heart of the gospel. And he sort of sums it up, really, in a few words. He says, we have punished justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. We are guilty. We deserve to die. This man doesn't. And in many ways, I think his words were quite courageous. I mean, everybody had been criticising Jesus, had been throwing abuse at him, the rulers, the soldiers, even the other criminal. And this man decides he can't stand all of this any longer. He must speak up on behalf of this innocent man next to him. I think it's difficult to go against the flow. It's difficult to go against the popular prevailing view. But this man does it. Most of us might prefer to keep our heads down and to keep quiet, mind our own business. It wasn't as if this man had anything to gain by speaking up for Jesus, but he speaks up for the innocent man. Even in his desperate situation, he couldn't stand the injustice of the remarks that were made against Jesus. And this is deeply challenging because this man at this point hasn't quite expressed any faith in Jesus But for those of us that would call ourselves believers, it's too easy to avoid difficult situations and not speak up for the innocent, not speak up and out against injustice. But this man does it. We should be willing to stand up for truth and righteousness and stand against injustice as well. His life is nearly over, and he makes this request of Jesus, which indicates some level of faith. He says, remember me, When you come into your kingdom. He doesn't ask for much, just asks Jesus to remember him. I wonder what he had in mind here. Because clearly Jesus was not going to establish the kingdom that everybody else had wanted. He wasn't going to become this leader who was going to overthrow the Romans. He's about to die. And yet this criminal seems to see something and understand something about the kingdom and the nature of kingdom which the other people in front of him have perhaps missed. The other criminal on the other side of Jesus said, aren't you the Messiah? The sign said he was the king of the Jews. The soldiers mocked him for being the king of the Jews. The the rulers laughed at him saying, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. But this man understands something about this kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. He understands that there's something in eternity that's going to be real about the kingdom of Jesus. I wonder if this man had actually heard Jesus teach at some point. I wonder if he'd knew of somebody that got healed by Jesus. I wonder if he'd interacted in some way on the fringes of a a meeting that Jesus had taken. I don't know. We're not told. But in this moment, he expresses some kind of faith. He refuses to join him with a mocking. He says, remember me. And even in our darkest moments, when all hope is gone, and when we're facing a really uncertain future, we can still say to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In those moments leading up to death, anyone can find mercy and turn to Jesus, as this story illustrates. And over the years, I've been a few occasions where I've heard stories about people coming right to the end of their lives with no interest in God or Jesus at all, but turning to know him in those last moments, which is what this man did. And Jesus says in verse 43, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, paradise is a garden of pleasure, referring, it sort of alludes back to the garden of Eden, really, where you have a situation where Adam and Eve were living in paradise, perfect harmony with God and they were living this innocent pure life and then in Christ we are restored to a heavenly paradise. So Jesus clearly states that today this man will be with him in his presence. He will be there. This is what the theologians call The intermediate state. It's the idea that when you die, you go immediately into the presence of God. You go immediately into the presence of Jesus. Uh, It's this sort of uh, condition between dying and when Jesus returns and we get resurrection bodies. That's just known as the intermediate state. And this text particularly reassures us that at the moment we die, we know and we are in the presence of Jesus. Today, you will be with me. What a comfort that must have been for this criminal. He had no idea how Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. He had no idea when that was going to happen. But Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. What a great encouragement to a man who is in excruciating pain. And knows he has very little life left. To know that actually he's going to be part of this kingdom somehow in a a, a very short time. He's close to Jesus on the cross, but he will be with Jesus in paradise. And then verse 44 says, It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid." It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The whole land was dark for three hours in the middle of the day. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, enormously significant theologically as God and man are being reconciled through the death of Jesus. And then we have the reaction of the centurion. We discover another man here who believed in Jesus and expressed some kind of faith. Why would anybody express faith in a dead Messiah? Why would anybody worship God before this dead man? There must have been something in the way he died and something that, in the way those events unfolded that made this centurion respond in that way. I mean, he would have, he'd have seen scores and scores of prisoners die, and no doubt some of them died in very dignified ways. But there was something very different about this man. And I think it must have been, as much as anything, the fact that the sky turned dark for three hours. There was that sense of foreboding... <laughs> They knew, I think many of the people in that that crowd knew that some kind of judgment was about to come upon them. That's why people were beating their breasts and they, they went away. There was nothing else to do. They knew that an innocent man had been crucified. And not just a man, but there was something special about this man. The sky had turned dark. They were distressed. Some of them may have thought back to the time of the plagues in Egypt, in Moses' time, when one of those plagues was this great thick darkness that came over the land and uh, was a judgment on that particular nation. And here again, you've got this darkness which lasts for three hours in what should have been the brightest time of the day. It was unnerving. It was surely a sign that judgment was coming. The light of the world was temporarily dimmed, only to reignite in his dazzling fullness on the day of the resurrection. But all those who knew him, the women that had followed him from Galilee, stayed for a while. They stood at a distance. I wonder if even then, some of them were remembering that Jesus had talked about resurrection and they were still watching to see what might possibly happen. And then finally, we have Joseph of Arimathea, who was another believer who comes and asks Pilate for permission to have the body and buries Jesus in his own tomb. I like the way that Luke has set up this story because what he's saying is that Jesus divides opinion. Jesus divides opinion and the story demonstrates it. There's a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus divides opinion. One commentary sums it up like this. There is a whole range of reactions to Jesus, from cruel mocking to painful mourning, and each of us must face up to the claims of both his person and his death, deciding either for him or against him. Neutrality is not really permitted by Jesus' life and claims if one understands who Jesus saw himself to be. He divides opinion. You're either for him or you're against him. And as this story unfolds, we find we have three people or three groups of people who were against him. First of all, you had the rulers who mocked him. Then you had the soldiers who mocked him. And then finally, you had the criminal who mocked him. That's in the first part of the story. But then as the story goes on, you find you have a criminal who expresses faith in him. Uh, A soldier, a centurion who expresses faith in him. And a ruler who expresses faith in him. He balances the three. He says you're either against him or you're for him. But you cannot sit in the middle. You cannot sit on the fence. You can try and ignore Jesus, but ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so you can't avoid him. You have to make that choice. You're either against or you're for. That's, the, that's the, how it works. He divides opinion. That's what Luke is saying. So which side will you take? Will you stand in the crowd with the mockers and sneer at Jesus? Or will you have the courage to stand and express faith in him? Where will you place yourself when you look at the cross?
1: Why don't we just stand to our feet where we are. And I wonder, I wonder what side you would identify with. Whether perhaps you came in here um, and you are a believer, you are a follower of Jesus. Um, or perhaps perhaps you came in this morning and you're not. And you know you're not. And you know you've never surrendered your life to the Lord. Um, I, just, I just really feel... Uh, it's, it's a really appropriate time in light of that, to some extent, terrifying passage, but at the same time wonderfully hopeful, as we know the subsequent chapters, as we, as we read about Jesus' resurrection. For those that did mock, for those that did scoff, for those that did hurl insults at him, it's a terrifying passage and we understand what what the implication of that is but for those that that have surrendered their life for those that that acknowledge him as king, as lord um, there is incredible hope in his death because you see we recognise that in the death of Jesus he died for the sin that we owed Sin in the Bible is, is, is wrongdoing, it's rebellion, it's selfishness, it's pride. It's turning away from God and doing things our own, in our own strength. But actually, through Jesus' death on the cross, he dealt with all of that sin. He dealt with that gray in the middle. He dealt with that, with that sitting on the fence, as Malcolm was talking about, that we can no longer sit in that place that we have to decide. Will we accept his death on the cross? Will we surrender um, our life to him, repent of our sin and put our trust and faith in him as those three people did? Or will we continue in in our own efforts, in our own strengths, with our own selfishness, in our own pride? And will we, by doing that, mock Jesus? And we have, to, we have to face the reality of that. So I'm just going to give just a couple of seconds just for us to pause and just reflect. It may be that you know, you are somewhere in your own heart and you don't know if you're fully all in. Perhaps you prayed a prayer once or, or perhaps you, you may even call yourself a believer, but actually having understood, having looked at Jesus on the cross once again, you come to the point just just wanting to still your heart and just recommit yourself and say, Lord, I'm all in. I want to surrender to you. I'm just going to give just 20, 30 seconds just as we reflect on that decision, as we reflect on that choice. Um, You know, it says in 1 Peter, Peter writes and he says, um, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of, Of the whole world his death on the cross is sufficient for every single sin in the whole world we read that in John and then Peter says that he is patient with us not wanting anyone to perish that actually he would he would he would want us to choose to surrender to Christ He waits for us to surrender to him till he receives the fullness of the glory, um, as it says. But we're just going to give just a few seconds just as while we reflect on this. Where do we sit? Where do we sit in that?